If you're looking to diversify your media spend, I want to mention Nextdoor. Nextdoor is the neighborhood network where neighbors come together to share ideas, give recommendations, ask for help, and much more. Why advertise with Nextdoor? Listen to some of the stats they, they gave me. They are nearly one in three households in the U.S. CPMs are competitive at around $10. Their audience is typically the household decision maker. If you're listening to this podcast, you're eligible for $300 in ad credit with no spend necessary. Just go to nextdoor.com slash Matt and fill out the getting started form. Nextdoor ads are still in beta. If the team decides you're qualified, they'll schedule a getting started call. During that call, mention my name or you came from this podcast and you'll get $300 automatically added to your account. Again, for free. Once again, that is nextdoor.com slash Matt. Hello and welcome back to e-commerce uncovered weekly podcast show for brand owners under a million in revenue trying to get over a million. I'm Matt Lady. I'm your host. I talk to experts, people in the weeds doing this stuff daily, talking about what's working, what's not working so that you can get free actionable advice. This week I have Andrew Ferris. He leads 4x400, a modern day holding company of multiple brands all in this revenue range should be an awesome episode for you guys. Andrew, first of all, how the hell are you? <laughs> uh, I'm doing very well. Um, thank you. I'm, uh, yeah, I, I, this is going to be dated by the time this comes out, but last night I went to the Dodgers wildcard playing game. I'm a big Dodgers fan and they walked it off for the W. So I'm still in the afterglow of that. I'm feeling great. And it's great to talk to awesome. you, Matt. I, um, yeah. we've interacted a lot, a whole lot, I think, um, on Twitter and elsewhere. And you, you, I still remember you sending me a very kind um, out, went out of your way to send me a video when we acquired one of our brands um, saying, hey, here's some thoughts. And it was just so generous of you to spend time thinking about it, sending it over. So um, I'm really glad to be really glad to be talking. I just realized I, sh- I should have been wearing my Civitas shirt for this, but uh, I didn't. That's OK. That, so. That's you're not the first guest. And I don't think you'll be the last that will say that. Um, yeah. That yeah. Yeah. Civitas is coming back in a slightly different way this year. And it's really I saw soon, so. I saw something about that. And I what is the deal with that? Can you tell me really fast? Yeah. So can you not if, if you can't tell me, it's OK. Oh, no. Uh, it's basically going to come back as print on demand shirts instead of like ordering a bunch of inventory ahead of time because. I am doing a hundred other things and have clients and whatnot. So I want to pursue it in a more sustainable, reasonable way rather than like buying. Yeah. This is my first brand last year. So I was like, I bought a bottle right. of inventory up front and like did all the like common mistakes that brand owners do. Uh, yep. So that actually helps me inspire this show for this year so that maybe one person can make one less mistake. So I'm, I'm stoked to talk to you. Um, talk about what brands shouldn't be doing, what they should be. For you right now, Andrew, let's give them some like, what's like your biggest gripe? What's the number one thing you see on Twitter? You talk to other brand owners, you see an admission in the common thread ecosystem. What's the number, what's like one number one thing people constantly get wrong in your eyes over and over when they're in the early days of, building a brand um goodness that is that is a hard question for me to answer what's the number one thing i see people get wrong um i think it might be a matter of perspective um i i think 
that one of the challenges to sort through, I think this is a life, this is a life challenge right now, and it applies to e-commerce just like it does anything else. Um, there is, um, there's so much advice giving um, happening all the time, um, all over the place, and. So I actually think the kind of the challenge, the, the the number one difficulty, especially in that stage, is is doing the best thing next, um, and and it it's really hard, and especially when you're new and you don't have if, if you're if you're if you're in the stage you're at, it means you're probably not uh, like if you're in the stage of of, of sub a million in revenue, you're trying to establish this. My guess is it means you're not in, insanely experienced. You're not. Um, you don't have tons of cash on hand, so um, and you don't and you don't have tons of time, like because you're probably doing a million things. So um, I think well-meaning people give you more stuff to do all the time, and they give you they give you more advice um, about oh, try this, do this, do that, do this. Um, and I think in the early stages, that can just send you spinning around. And if and the thing I think that's the most risky of all of those is to invest heavily in paid media as a um as the the place where you're going to win because um you can spend a lot of bad money really fast and it can really put you in a hole so um i've seen that in a few different places so yeah so i think those are that's kind of a that's kind of a broad answer but and i I do think this is a life thing there's like like just there's so much i mean think about Matt, think about how much advice you see on Twitter about like how to live better in general. Like, are you working out enough? Are you meditating enough? Are you taking enough? Are you, do you have enough work-life balance? Are you? I mean, it's just like there's like a million things. Like, you know, don't, and if you, you know, if you just lift, then you also need to do cardio. And if you just, and are you eating right? And are you sure you should be drinking the amount of coffee you should be drinking? And cut out alcohol completely, otherwise you're doing it wrong. Like, it's just like, I mean, it's just that's just the world we live in. And part of that is like the entrepreneurial ecosystem is people who are like constantly trying to do stuff and incessantly trying to do stuff well. And I, um, it becomes a, there's like a weird, like, um, the only word I can think of for it is like legalism about it. What, what I mean is like a, 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 like a do all of these million things to accomplish what you want to accomplish and find the value you want to value. And, um, uh, boy, that, that can be difficult. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's the big challenge is, is in the early stage, the big challenge is, Focus on the best thing next. Focus on the best thing next. I think that's a great answer and a counterintuitive one. I've been finding more and more. I'm asking these big, broad, general sweeping questions. And I'm getting a bunch of my guests being like, hold on. There's nuance. There's context. It matters. And I like that. And this it's different than just like we're saying, like you were just saying, blasting out oh, I'm going to change my entire business strategy because I just saw this 160-character tweet from someone I respect, even though they have no idea what's happening in your business and you know your right. brand better. So I'm I'm so yeah. with you on that. I'm glad you brought that up and answered it that way. But you said, let's solve the next best thing. How mm -hmm. can we start to narrow down, to focus in, to determine what that next lever is to pull? What... What are some of the things you think about, either metrics or stage of brand or these other like factors that help you figure out what that next best thing to do is? Yeah. So uh, the answer to this question is is first of all, I can't answer it for you because uh, or I can't answer it for somebody because I don't know what somebody's goals are. So um, 
every question like this, and this is something that I'm starting to develop more thinking around. I, I would say I'm not great at managing or executing this yet. Uh, and, and I suspect this is a journey to do as well. But um, I think the, the, um, the real uh, way that you will guide your business is, uh, is having a clear idea of where you're trying to get to and then managing everything towards that. And that will help you determine what the best the next best thing is. So you mentioned that we've got brands that kind of are all in that range. Well, they're not all currently in the range of sub a million, but they all started there. Um, so we acquire brands that are, um, so far, we have, we have at times acquired six brands and started one um, in, the, in the time that 4400s existed. Um, and, uh, of those brands, they all started, I mean, one of them started from scratch and then the other ones all, we got them all. I think the biggest brand we acquired, um, had actually done a million dollars a couple years before we acquired it, but was down to like a 250 or something by the time that we acquired. It, and that's part of why we acquired it. So, um, so, you know, we really haven't acquired a very big brand ever. Uh, that's probably the biggest one we've acquired. And, um, and so, yeah, I've been in this, I've been in this world a lot, uh, the sub a million world. And, um, and first of all, just so you know, like we are not magicians. Uh, I just published an episode of my podcast talking about the failure of one of those brands and about how it didn't work out. We sold it for pennies and, um, that was that. I mean, it was a, we, we, we had some big misses there. Um, and there's another one. So the brand we started, we shut down pretty fast, blew a couple hundred grand on that. Um, and then we've got another brand that uh, that probably also doesn't look right now. There's a lot. We'll see. We'll see how things develop. But right now, I think it's kind of just sitting quietly, and I don't think it'll scale really. So we've gone, I would say, four for seven in terms of like some measure to lots of success, getting to where we want to go, into the millions and, and all that. Um, and, and in the midst of that, what I'll say is like for all seven of those brands, the thing that I knew for sure that I wanted – that I was going to need to be able to do was to acquire customers profitably. So everything that I've really cared most about for those brands in the earliest stage, at least is about that. Um, it's about, it's about that issue. Can I profitably acquire customers? Um, if I can, then I can go solve a bunch of other problems farther down the road. Um, and, but the first thing to do is can I acquire uh, customers profitably? Now for us, I come from an agency background where I spent all my time thinking about paid media. So um, I have felt like that was probably the main lever we should be pulling um, to try to do that because that's that happens to be where my team has the most background skill and, and all that and the way we set up our finances and some of that. But I'll tell you what, we've blown a lot of money on paid media that didn't go very well too, um, a lot. And so if I was like a solo founder trying to do this out of my own cash, like my family savings or something like that, like it would have gone really poorly. It's this different deal. We raised a little bit of money, uh, you know, uh, pre-revenue basically. And, and so it's kind of a different, different story, but, um, but so that's the, so that's what we did. So then, so then for me, what it was all about was, can we use Facebook ads to acquire uh, and, and a little bit of Google to acquire customers profitably? And everything has been about that. That's the goal. And everything we do, every website change we make, um, every, uh, product we think about introducing, um, everything we set up has been about that. Can we acquire customers profitably? Now there's a lot of sub problems within that one problem, which is like ads, landers, offers, products. Um, another way you can acquire customers more profitably is you can, you can keep your, your, um, 
your ad performance steady, but you can reduce your costs, right? So uh, like reduce your other costs, your, your, uh, your cogs and, and fulfillment and all that kind of stuff. So we, you know, hammer away at that. Um, so, but really I would say if you're 7 million, my guess is you actually probably are in a similar spot to that. Um, and there's a lot of different ways you can go about this. But again, this is where the goal really matters because if you're just, if you're building a solo operator business, you're not looking for some big exit. You're not trying to raise a bunch of money, any of those kinds of things. All you're trying to do um, is create a great business for you and your family that maybe you want to run it for 10 hours a week or something like that. Well, that's a really different goal than like scale this thing to $10 million, build out a team, maybe raise. Like, I mean, there's a lot of different stuff. So how I would get to those two things uh, would be really different and, a, and my, my strategy would be really different. So that's what I would say. First, as clearly as you can, know your goal. And I would say invest in like, this is where I would invest in like getting some coaching, getting some help, getting some input, like to think through for you personally. There is no right answer to that question. Like uh, there's plenty of days, man, where I think like, Boy, I tell you what, running a much smaller business on the side as like part of my life would would make me less would would give me less financial upside in all of this. It for sure would. Uh, I mean, probably would anyway. Uh, but it would be delightful as a lifestyle. Like I would really love it. So I'm so if that was what I wanted to do, then I would behave really differently. I think so far this uh, incredibly nuanced and contextually based question and answer. And I think that makes a ton of sense. And so I think for so many people, we on all these podcasts and probably even my show is going to be guilty of this, of we don't have all the context. We don't have all the details. You see these big brands. We point to them all the time on, on Twitter and say, these are the darlings. These are the people doing well to look up to. You have no idea how profitable they are if at all you don't always know the funding and status and all of the roadblocks of oh we spent fifteen thousand dollars on facebook ads out of my own money and only got back five thousand dollars from these so small solo operators like you're saying we don't hear those should have put that money into bitcoin you know <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes i mean or whatever like it's just like it's yeah it's like it's not it's not always obvious that that that's the way that the sort of win on paid media is the way forward. There's potentially other better things you could do. Yeah. Okay. So say they are a lifestyle business and are looking to grow this sustainably and in a pretty calm, not as fast paced as we're probably used to manner uh, on the, on the client side or even your, the holding company. Mm -hmm. For the, say I'm I'm holding on to this brand for the next five years, I'm at 500 grand in revenue now. I've been running the brand for a couple of years already. I want to hold on to this sucker for the next five years, <laughs> knowing that, and knowing I have a fair amount standard cash on hand. I'm right into Q4, I'm looking into Black Friday this year. How would you start to? Uh, say I bought an hour consulting call from Andrew for my brand, and this is essentially what this is, is how would you start to begin to narrow down your advice and your guidance based on these factors in this context for Black Friday in this upcoming next few months for holiday? Yeah. Um, so I would start with, uh, asking some questions about my inventory constraints because I'm assuming that you have, um, if you if you probably have some inventory constraints, um, if you are running that size business, you probably aren't 
sitting on tons and tons of stuff. Um, so, so I think if there's, if, you know, this, this would change depending on if I had a lot of inventory that I wanted to move, I would probably be more aggressive with my offer. If I didn't, I would be less aggressive with my offer. Um, so that would be the kind of starting point. Um, and you know, we're probably at a point now where it's going to be really hard to stock a bunch more inventory, um, for that time. So that, that would be the starting point. Cause then I have this game to play, which is relative to the inventory I have on hand. Um, how do I maximize the total retail value of that inventory and minimize my cost of selling it? Um, again, especially if I'm trying to build something sustainable long term here, I'm not trying to just flip that into cash. I, I, that's, that's the game that I want to play there is like, how do I get the most dollars for this inventory and how do I spend the least amount of money doing it? Um, and so I would think beyond Black Friday in that respect, I would think about the entire holiday season. Um, really, I would say sort of like with a focus on Black Friday through December 21st or something like that. Um, and and say like, if I take that 30-day window, what what can I do here to maximize this moment? Um, granting also that for that person, they probably also have a time constraint relative to their own amount of things that they can do. Um so then you have to simplify your strategy. So um, I would say I would do a couple of things. Um, I would first really play out that that inventory projection. Uh, if And if I have enough inventory to where I could actually go pretty big here, um, I would be aiming first at making my Black Friday, Cyber Monday weekend offer. First of all, I'd only do four days. I wouldn't extend it. I mean, you could start it on Thursday night. That's fine. But like, uh, I wouldn't do some week and a half long sale to try and really, you know, massively do all that stuff. I've seen everybody try and do that a million times for years. And it just seems to me that it ends up working against the um, urgency that you want to build into a big offer. Um, so there's that. Secondly, um, I would be totally fine with discounting in most cases. I would say it's really, I mean, unless you have a brand where you really don't want a discount. Um, if you have a brand where you really don't want a discount, then this is hardly even a question for you. Like I would say, um, you, there's a couple things you could still do to play with this. Uh, to sort of create an offer without much of a discount, but um, like typically with like a bundle or something uh, where you're, you're putting a couple things together and trying to drive AOV and then you sort of maybe make it feel less like a pure discount. But uh but generally, um, if you're willing to discount, and I think most brands should be willing to discount on Black Friday, Cyber Monday weekend, um, I would. This is probably the key thing for me. I would build my offer to, for AOV. So what I mean by that is, I would make a point of whatever offer I create and however I put it in front of the customer with you know email, ads, SMS, anything that I'm using to do that. Um, I would send people to an offer where the top thing that I show is some kind of a bundle at my best price so that I would try to drive my AOV up. And I've seen this work for a lot of brands across a lot of different verticals, um, and and it, it just consistently works. If you're going to do a 20% off site-wide deal or something like that, then one, then add some bundle on top where you're giving people 25 or 30% off. It's your very best offer, but you're also asking for $100 more, you know, or, or whatever, right? Like, um, a, a, a not insignificant number of customers will take that offer and you will, you will end up putting more on your bottom line because of it. And so what you give away, um, in, uh, 
what you give away in margin, you will out partly get back on total dollars collected and you'll actually get some of that back on gross margin. It's almost always the case that a larger order and a bundled order ends up being higher actual margin for you because um, you know, if you're, if, if you're working with a three PL, for example, the first pick is the most expensive pick. So if, so you're, you're going to save some money there. Same thing is true with, with shipping in general, right? Shipping rates, like the first thing you put in the package is the most expensive thing for most packages. And then after that, as you add to it, it it's not proportionally the same cost. So if you can build a bigger order, you're going to save some on things like pick, pack and ship. You're going to save some, um, you're, you know, you're going to, uh, uh, tend to do well there. So that's going to end up giving you some margin back, which is really good. Um, Tends to be the case. I mean, Black Friday, Cyber Monday weekend, customers are going to be your worst customers of the year. They're, they're going to have the lowest LTV. So I wouldn't bank on that much. But it also tends to be the case that higher dollar customers are better customers. So there, there's maybe even some increased value there. Um, but most of all, I mean, you're just going to end up getting this big lift in conversion rate and this big lift in AOV. And that's going to end up making every click more valuable to you. And that's what I would do. Um, a couple of small things too. Don't discount less than 20%. If you're going to discount, get at least 20%. Otherwise, it's going to get washed out in the Black Friday noise. Um, uh, that's That's been my experience. Um, I really like a site-wide discount as opposed to a discount code because I just think it's easier for the customer. So the customer, it just reduces a little bit of friction for them. Um, so that that can be really good. Um, and, um, and then, yeah, you give some people, if they buy a certain product and you've got it discounted a little bit more, um, that, that some of that changes depending on how big of a SKU set you have. But again, at that store size, my guess is you don't have tons and tons of SKUs. So, um, so if you've got 10 SKUs, I would just go individually mark them all down at the moment. Just literally go and be like, this one gets 20% off, this one gets 20% off, and so on. So uh, yeah, that's what I would do. Black Friday, Cyber Monday weekend, I'd have a, an offer built around high AOV. Um, and, uh, and then I would send a bunch of emails to your customers. I would say if you're don't get, sh- don't, now's not the time to be shy about sending a lot of email to a large portion of your list. Worry about clean list segmentation, worry about all of those email tactics all the rest of the year long. But for Black Friday, Cyber Monday weekend, send lots of people, lots of email and, um, and just like hammer away. I, I mean, I saw brands, I've seen brands send four emails every day, like just like, you know, to large portions of their list. So, um, yeah, you probably should be a little, a little, a little careful. You probably don't want to spam people too hard there and like get yourself blacklisted. But mostly I wouldn't worry about that. I'd say if you practice good email practices throughout the rest of the year, then then you do that. So yeah, that's that's what I would say. Um, now, it's not the time to worry about unsubscribes and, and being marked as spam. It's the time, it's time to maximize that list. Because I'll tell you what, uh, one more thing on that. The, um, the people who unsubscribe or mark you as spam during that time of the year, we're not if if they don't if they're not even interested in your Black Friday Cyber Monday offer, they don't want they're not interested in your brand anyway. So when they jump off of your list, who cares? That was not a customer. You lost no value there. Um, so yeah, so that's yes. what I, that's 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 what I would say. Tr- seek to drive AOV. Um, d- uh, don't be afraid to send plain text emails. Gosh, that's a fast way to get a lot of work done. Make one or two of those emails literally just plain text. You'll get a higher actual deliverability, by the way. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I, like, make one or two of those. Just, like, type in some words, put an in-text classic hyperlink, and and say, here you go. Just wanted to remind you, this deal's still here. Click send. There you go. I just, that there's $1,000 for you, uh, like that. You for know, five minutes. Like send an email. Right, exactly. Yeah. 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 For the value to time output there. Yeah. yeah, especially as a smaller founder operator, your time is 
seems like it's uh so tight anyway but if you can do yourself that and get some time back and still be getting getting the same or near the same financial return back save that hour uh plain text uh, absolutely increase that aov tons of sense with, um, specifically, specifically with bundling typically that's what you're gonna do find some way to bundle a few products together make it into your super ultimate bundle have giant flashing lights on your website that say go buy this and then make it the top thing on the page on mobile and there you go so yeah so, Simple to, so to speak you don't need actual yeah. flashing lights <laughs> yes no no actual yeah. flashing lights unless you're a flashing light brand and that makes sense uh so that's okay. right raise aov bundle site-wide discount make it simple reduce friction what is um that's all good stuff that's that i think that can apply to many uh brands early on what at, at is, the end of the uh, day my hope there is that that's not too much work right that that's like it's building a few emails like we, we didn't even talk about ads um and i don't i don't think we need to if you're trying to do that like if you've got any kind of a list there you go um i like yeah i think that can be a thing where you you are sending some emails building some offers and and that's the core of your strategy for black friday Cyber monday weekend uh you know site-wide discount you don't have to worry about discount codes nice Wait, and easy so Andrew, you're telling me the, this last three months that D2C Twitter's been yelling at me to start prepping for Black Friday? I don't need to prepare 120 days out if I'm a small brand? What? Uh, I mean, yeah, like, that's, exact, that's exactly the kind of thing I was talking about earlier. Like, it, there's going to be some of that stuff that's going to be really helpful to you, but it just depends so much on your goals. If, hey, look, if you want to get to 2 million really fast, it's, it's time to start thinking and prepping really hard for that moment, you, you know, but that's... But the situation you described, no, you don't. I don't think so. Yeah, maybe yeah. maybe if you're already running Facebook and you switch your offer from your evergreen to some retargeting on that bundle and past customers, cool. But you probably don't uh, need to go out of the way and prospect, right? Well, I mean, Black Friday, Cyber Monday weekend prospecting for... for... Unless you have some insane offer that you can communicate really, really, really quick to customers, it's a bloodbath on on Facebook. And Facebook is a bloodbath in general right now. So, like, I would just say, like, I would be really hesitant to do any prospecting Black Friday, Saturday, Monday, weekend. You're going to be acquiring your very unless, – unless you know you can acquire customers. I would way rather you be spending those prospecting dollars now um, and – and starting to build your audiences and your lists and some of those things, and then re, you know leading up to that moment while the traffic is still at a lower cost than it than it will be then, and then use that weekend to retarget those small little lists so you don't just have you so you don't have to go in there and try and win auctions against you know mega brands who are who are trying to do that like it's gonna you the CPM is going to double or more and it's and so unless you can convert that traffic um, because because your brand communicates that way then. Yeah, but I, again, the situation you described to me doesn't sound like the kind of brand owner who's trying to do that. Uh, it's you yep. know, if you want a steady yep. return, I, I would I would get ready to remarket, and that's kind of it. Here's a quick reminder of why you should advertise with Nextdoor. There are nearly in one in three households in the U.S. CPMs are competitive at around ten dollars. Their audience is typically the household decision maker. And if you're listening to this podcast, all you have to do for $300 in ad credit is go to nextdoor.com slash Matt. 
and fill out that getting started form. They're in beta, it's still early, but they're looking for advertisers to onboard. If you're a good fit, you're gonna get $300 automatically when you take that call with them and get signed up. And again, that link to go to is nextdoor.com slash Matt. Right on, cool. That makes a lot of sense. Um, what? So a little less uh, Black Friday specific now, moving on to kind of generally speaking as this small lifestyle brand owner, what and how do I determine who to hire? Do I hire someone in-house? Do I hire some, a freelancer? Do I hire an agency? There's been the great agency versus in-house debate on Twitter the last few weeks. I'm sure you have thoughts on that, and I'm sure that I'm going to need to give you some more qualifying information so you can give a better answer. But let's start to head this way about hiring and getting help outside of yourself. Um, yeah, again, uh, goals are going to be crucial here um, because, yeah, hiring, I think, uh, is going to depend so much on uh like where you're trying to go, what you're trying to build. But to the, to the question of agency versus not, um, I would say at that size, um, most agencies are going to be a bad fit for you. And the reason why is that um, agencies need volume for them to make money um, as a general rule. So, I would distinguish here, like Matt, I don't know what your setup is for sort of what your kind of client size are and what you're trying to build. Um, and I also don't know what the relationship you ha you personally have with the work is um, for your agency. But like, like uh, you know, a Common Thread Collective where, where which is a the sister company and owned by the same parent company of uh, 4 for 100. And that's, you know, I worked at CTC for a long time. Um, you know, the sort of the growth team, cl like clients, the full team clients are getting like six people working on their account. And like, you're just not at that size. It's going to cost you all of your revenue to, to hire that kind of talent. So that that's off the table. So then the question is like, can, and can you hire sort of like a smaller agency that wants to be a little more boutique, take on smaller clients and loves helping them scale. Um, and in that case, you, um, you need to be careful because like a freelancer with like 10 clients who are all paying, you know, two or three grand a month is going to be stretched really thin and not giving you a lot of time because what an agency does to make money is mark up their time. Um, and so, the, if, so if they're not charging that much, then they can't mark up their, their then they have to keep their time down, right? Um, so they're not giving you that much time. So I would just say like, just to know that. Um, and yeah, so again, that's, there's a size, there's a size context constraint there that I think is really important. Um, what I would also say is that at that stage, a really smart person with a small budget, um, uh, relatively speaking, who is hungry and trying to learn it, I would. What I would do is be looking really hard for somebody that I could that I could trust to solve problems for me and figure figure it out. Look, marketing like paid media um, and and that sort of thing is not uh, it's not theoretical physics. Like it's you don't need advanced degrees in technical knowledge. You need a, a, a relentlessness about problem solving. Uh, really, that's what you need. 
uh, t- uh, Taylor Holiday, my one of my partners and I, like we we have always talked about um, the idea that like maybe we would try and hire media buyers by finding people who are really good at fantasy sports and and like hire them out of that. And that's um, that's because like what you need to win fantasy sports is is um, is an ability to solve a game in a closed system. And that's kind of what media buying is. So, um, so like, what I mean is like, it's not a technical skill in that respect. It's about critical thinking and strategic problem solving, primarily, uh, and, and some communication skills at the advertising level. But, um, so, so I just, so that's what I would say is look for that kind of person, and if they're hungry, then you can maybe try to help that person do that, and then find them the best training you can. In my opinion, that's probably admission for the CTC product. It's like a thousand dollars a month. Um, it's a closed thing with a bunch of webinars and, and, um, like a mix of video package plus live training, plus an actual community with, um, experts in the community to help you buy. It's really, really good. Um, and so, um, so like, that's what I would probably pursue is something like admission. That's, uh, your admission, ad mission, um, dot co, uh, check that out. I think if you use the code Andrew, you get like a hundred bucks off or something. So, um, anyway, um, but that uh, that would be the kind of thing I would be doing is, is trying to train the skills myself or 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 training a new person with those skills. If I really want to go invest in paid media, that's what I would do. I would, I would get the skill. And the other thing that's going to do for you is that over time, if you do grow and scale, you're going to now have more vocabulary with which to manage an outsourced team, team member or team with an agency or whatever. So as you learn the skills yourself and do it yourself at that stage, which I think you should probably do, um, then I would say from there... Now you can now you can also manage whoever it is that you do hire. So uh, maybe that's actually the answer. I talked around it a little bit. Um, lot bigger picture than all of that. No matter what size business you're at, my theory on agency versus not is is really simple. Hire the best people you can, and don't worry too much about how much you pay them. Um, what I mean is like when you when you the um, the benefit to your company is so outsized when you find a truly excellent contributor that um, it's almost impossible to overpay that person. I mean, you, it's probably possible, but it's really hard to, if they're really that good. Um, and so that person might be a team leader at an agency. Um, that person might be somebody you can bring in-house who ends up being amazing. I don't really care. Uh, both of them can totally work. What you want is the best minds possible working on your brands. And so that's what I would be on the hunt for. And I would take calls with agencies and individuals, both depending on your budget and all those kinds of things. Um, but that's what you really want is that. Um, I like that. And that's why when you are talking with an agency, the piece of advice I have is don't just talk to the salesperson, talk to the actual person who will work on your account that they are good and talented it, um, because that's the person who you actually need to figure out if they're good or not. The salesperson isn't going to do the work. So, um, so yeah, talk to them and find out, ask the salesperson, Hey, what's the name of the person who's going to be on my account? Okay. Their name is Andrew. Their name is Matt. Great. I want to talk to Andrew. I want to talk to Matt. Um, and get a sense of how good they are. Uh, if the person won't let you do that, then that's not an agency worth hiring. Um, and uh, if they uh, if they will, then you can bet it from there. Cool. I love that answer. I love the nuance. I love the explanations. Uh, best best available. It sounds very similar to how certain sports drafts go, and where ah, well, we really need a power forward, but right now the best available power forward isn't projected until 40 and we're pick eight so we're just going to invest in a top talent and go pick up a free agent or make a trade later for power forward right you're just going to take the best available talent yep 
I think that's totally right. Yeah. Uh, so I love get the most love val- that. get the most value you can. And depending on how quick you want to go, that might take three weeks. That might take three months to source and vet and talk and communicate and go back and forth with all these different potential partners. And if you are building a lifestyle business, three months is not that long to find the right partner. Uh, Some people, that's a a lifetime. But uh, I think it's important to note that. um, Totally. It'll take time. Okay, so not so much. doesn't matter so much in-house versus agency. Best best person available. It's just advantages and disadvantages to both, man. Like I, you know, of course, and that's course. that's what it comes down to. And and so what you really want is 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 smart people. That's what you want. So you want smart people. You get you get those smart people into your your team and your brand. Uh, you've grown a few brands at least uh, from this early stage, sub a million, up above, couple million revenue and beyond. How does your role as the operator and brand owner shift as you continue to grow over those different stages and start to maybe put benchmarks or milestones um, of how things change and where things change? Uh, So I'm not a great example of this because I have been in a multi-brand system for the entire time, basically. Um, So I haven't walked quite this journey in the same way. The best thing I can say about this is that the... um, the, the way that teams function changes in general. And the analogy is um, early teams are more like golf buddies um, where everybody is in everybody's shot. Uh, so like one person hits and everybody watches and then they talk about it and they go from there. And, um, and then the play, people who are playing golf um, are the only people affecting the ball, right? So it's like, you know, so one person is hitting their shot and then they are walking down, hitting their next shot, and go on. So they're in the work completely. And if you have team members, you're all kind of in each other's work to some degree or another. You're talking about a lot of stuff. Um, and you know what? It's really fun. Uh, like Eric, if you like the people, it can be really fun. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, so that's that's the first part. The next stage that you get to is a basketball team. Uh, basketball teams have 12 players on them, and um, you are pretty close still. Um, but there begins to be to be at least a little bit more specialization. So you're still touching the ball a lot. Um, there's five guys on the court in basketball, five gals on the court in basketball, um, and um, and now you've got some positions. Now everybody's running up and down the court at the same time, um, and so and anybody at any play can touch the ball. Anybody can score. But um, but you have a little more specialization. You have inside players and outside players, shooters and you know whatever. And so um, so there's there's all kinds of or there's, there's a few different little things like that. And that role change starts to happen in an organization where, okay, now you're a little less directly in the work and maybe you're even really trying to set up a teammate for more of a success and say like, okay, this person, we're going to set them up to shoot all the time. This other person over here, we're going to set them up to rebound all the time. Uh, but everybody can get a rebound at any time, you know? Um, so, uh, so, and that, that becomes that. Eventually from there, it becomes more like a football team. And a football team, you've got now... I don't know, 60 people on a roster or something like that. The kicker might not have ever had a conversation with the defensive, with a defensive lineman, like for all I know. They're on the same team. They're all pursuing the same goal. But now the kicker just has got to be able to kick, and that's really all he needs to be able to do. The defensive, the, the 
defensive linemen, they really just need to be able to rush the quarterback and tackle running backs or whatever, and that's all they really need to be able to do. And they don't care. Like, the wide receiver can go handle what the wide receiver handles. Um, and it becomes more more and more like that um, to where now the coach's role changes and be, and um, and if, if you're the coach in that situation or the quarterback or whatever, um, now you, you have to get good at, like, being able to come up with a game plan that gets you to where to how to score, gets you to where you're trying to go, and then direct people for their parts of that game plan as well as possible, which typically is about goal setting and about um, sort of like giving people clear goals to know what the best thing next to work on is and um, and help them to do that and, and to equip managers to help their people and, and all that. So, yeah, so over time, I think that's kind of the way it changes. It goes, um, there's, in those early stages, you don't actually need to be that organized. You can be, you can be, you can cover over a lot of things just by like slacking somebody, jumping on a Zoom call, calling somebody, whatever, um, and like having some kind of basic management system. You, you don't need, I don't think, you don't need incredibly clear KPIs. You need one clear goal that everybody's trying to do, a basic sense of how to get there, and um, and to go from there. Um, all, you need more clarity in your processes the bigger you grow, because process is going to take on a lot more of the lead role. Um, but again, I'm thinking about that more across brands um, and. Uh, and not so much in one brand, so that that you know, I don't know. Maybe maybe that would be wrong if I was if I was running a one brand. But I love I love the progression from golf buddies to basketball team to football team, even if it's cross brand or not. I think that makes a ton of sense. And even that's not my analogy. I should give credit. I should give credit there too. Uh, it's actually a, a a church growth uh, like a church leadership book I read a long time ago when I oh. was in the church world. So anyway, it was a it was a it was a team. Team it was a book called, book called Sticky Team. So anyway, I'm not the genius on that analogy. That was somebody else, but it always stuck with me. Thank you for explaining it and bringing it up. I'll give you credit for that. That was that was good yeah. and that helped me. Um, I played sports and sports fan my life, so that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So and and in the early days and depending on your lifestyle and your goals, you might be more of a player coach and you might still be in the weeds on certain things depending on your unique skill set, like. I'm if I ever start a brand again, which will happen, I have the marketing background that a product focused founder probably doesn't have, but I'm yes. not good at product. So I would my first hires or outsourcing or teammates I need to bring on is going to be different than your teammates that you are going to bring on and so on. Yeah. In fact, we at Forever for Hundred, we really structure like we look for founders where we complement their skills. Like we're tactical people, um, and like I'm not a product person either. And and then product people starting businesses, like it turns out they hate doing their finances and they hate like you know they're creative product people. A lot of time they they want to like make cool stuff and care for their customers. They don't they uh, you know and that's awesome. Like I, I like I love that. So we want to come around and like. At that point, maybe the analogy shifts to volleyball. We're just setters. All we do is we set the ball up, and the product people go spike at home. Um, but that's all the tactical marketing stuff does. It just set it up to like for them to go drive home, like putting an awesome product in somebody's hands. Um, and so, yeah. So I, I like I, I think that's completely right. And I in and in that respect, us finding each other, us and our founders that we bring in, is that kind of fit exactly. It's like us going like, um, hey we're the right fit for you. And I could imagine somebody, and we've actually done it. We've passed on some people who come in, like they're running pretty good paid media and they, um, and they have kind of a good setup there. And they're like, Hey, we, could you work with us and we could scale? And I kind of look at it and go like, no, like actually like you need a different kind of partner than what we are. Like, I'm sure we could help some, but you know, I'm not sure we're like 
that much better than you tactically or whatever, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, um, that insight there can go beyond what we're just talking about here. If an agency is, or a freelancer or anyone you're hiring only says positive things and only good things and only promises and doesn't ever point out a trade-off or some, a weakness, you don't want just a yes person to take your money. <laughs> so I think totally it's really right. cool, really good to like, you said that I'm going to pull it out a little bit more. <laughs> and like I mentioned, like you've mentioned as uh, either through the brand or through the agency, we turn down people too. It's like, okay, the math does not make sense. No one in the world can get you a 12x ROAS at scale prospecting. Like that just doesn't make sense. Like your yep. your margins are broken. That's not on me as a service provider to solve that for you. And that's right. been a long time, long time lesson for me to learn and impart on my now my team I'm growing to control the problems and focus on the solutions we have levers over and not what the brand owners are pushing on us. So that's it's, yeah, uh, that's that's the challenge of the service business. Yeah, is making sure that you define the problems you're working on and you can provide solutions and ideas for those problems, but not every problem. So defining that scope is good and key in finding the right partner too. Um, okay, so a few minutes left. going to try to wrap it up here. I want to go um, a little less hardball, a little less challenge question where I'm making you think on the spot. I've been doing enough of that. Thank you. <laughs> this, this whole time. Yeah. Uh, so what is one sort of, what's one thing you've learned uh, since the beginning of the pandemic uh, in relation to e-commerce and customers and running a business that you think has made a positive difference for you since the pandemic started in terms of how you've thought about business, how you thought about life, how you view things, how you work with teammates. What's one or two things that you really notice that shift now that it's been a year and a half since that we've kind of had to adjust to new circumstances? Yeah. Um, so, so you're thinking here, just help me clarify the question a little. You're thinking here of Specifically, things where the where the experience of the pandemic has affected how I think about business. Yeah, either affecting uh, business or teammates or how you run your ads, how you think about promotions and campaigns, and because like at a, at some level, the world is is changing and has changed, and some of it will go back to normal, some of it won't. So, what's um, okay? What are a couple? Things I have an that, answer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I have an answer to this. Um, I think the answer is that um, this, I already believe that the future is fundamentally unpredictable. Like, you think about the pandemic and what it represents is an unknown unknown. This is the, I think, Donald Rumsfeld classic thing. You've got um, known unknowns, unknown knowns, and unknown unknowns, basically, whatever. Yeah, this is a way of thinking about kind of categorizing the knowledge that you have. Like, there's stuff you know you don't know. There's stuff you do know, but you don't realize it. And there's stuff that you don't know and you don't know you don't know it. Um, <laughs> And, and the unknown unknown, that last category is the hardest thing. Um, and so I've, I use this example. I've probably on almost every podcast I've, I've come to, but, um, the, the book, the signal and the noise really helped me with this, um, that from Nate Silver on sort of like, what does it mean to try to predict 
things, to forecast things. How, what can we do? Um, and he, 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 um, he kind of just takes chapter by chapter different things that we can reasonably well, we can reasonably forecast probabilistically pretty well. Um, and things that we can't uh, probabilistically forecast very well. And a, a classic example is the weather, uh, which we're incredibly good at predicting. Uh, people make jokes about meteorologists, but actually meteorologists are amazing. They, it, it's almost never the case that the meteorologist says it's going to be 70 degrees tomorrow, and it's actually minus 20. Like, that doesn't happen, right? And that's because we... Ha- and when you think about that, the reason why is because um, we have a really good... We can measure almost all of the inputs in the, in the, um, in the system of weather, and we can measure them from on basically a 10-day window pretty clearly. So weather forecasts are very good for about 10 days. And beyond 10 days, if you just take historical averages from an almanac, you're probably going to get reasonably close, or at least it will be a pretty good predictor of like where you're going to be in most cases, probabilistically, right? Of course, there's edge cases on all things, but um, but in general, that's the case. So, so you know, last night I looked at the weather before I went to the Dodger game, and I, they said it was going to be in the 60s, and it was in the low 60s, and it was right. You know, like I it was, and they told me that three days before it happened. Um, so we, they predicted the prediction happened. So that's um, that was um, that was a, a prediction about the future that allowed me to get there. The um, the um, the alternative is earthquakes, which uh, I live in California. I I know all about earthquakes. Um, we um, we cannot predict them. We do not know when they are going to happen. An earthquake happened a couple of days ago. I had no idea it was coming. I knew, of course, that earthquakes could come at any time where I live, but I don't think about it very often. And um, and it was two miles from my house, and there was an earthquake, and nobody could have told me that it was going to happen ahead of time. And the reason why nobody could tell me is exactly the opposite of the reason why we can't tell the weather, which is that nobody knows the inputs for an earthquake. Nobody really – I mean, we understand something about fault lines, but we don't really understand what's causing an earthquake, right, um, in terms of – in a way that would allow it to be predictable. What the pandemic represents is a gigantic, unforecastable, unknown, unknown – Nobody, everybody could imagine this kind of thing happening. And people now point out retroactively, you know, people who said like, hey, we, you know, sort of a, a viral uh, uh, infectious, you know, uh, contagious viral disease could be a real problem in the world. Um, and that's fine, right? I mean, that's a pretty broad projection but or prediction. But what nobody could do is that. And what that means for running a business is really significant. It, I think two things. First off, for me, the two big lessons are, if the, fun, if the future is fundamentally unpredictable because of unknown unknowns that come in outside the system and change everything that happens, um, if, if that's true, it means first that I, um, that I allowed in the biggest mistake I've made as a leader relative to our finances and our business is um, I did not give us enough cushion. Um, and in fact, took on too much risk relative to our cash position and put us into a pretty tough spot. Um, so we have brands that are going great by any possible measure, but because we had a couple brands going really poorly as well, including the one I mentioned earlier that I sold off, that cost us a ton of money. And that made it so that when things changed fast for the worse, um, we didn't have the cash cushion we needed to not get anxious about it. Uh, um, and um, and so living in a world of fundamental unpredictability means that you should allow yourself some cash cushion because you don't know what's going to happen. It's, it's just like the personal finance advice of having three to six months of cash on hand um, for your family if you can, right? And there's some privilege to that I recognize. But, um, but if you're able to build that up into your finances, then uh, to really try to um, manage your finances to create that three to six months of, 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 of cash on hand. 
look, it's hard to sit there and watch cash just sit in your bank when you want to invest it and turn it into something else. It's, it can be hard. If you're an entrepreneurial type, it can be hard to just, ugh, this isn't doing anything for me. But man, it can, when things get crazy, it, it can be really helpful. So that's the first thing. And, and so what we're, what we're actively doing now is we're not acquiring another brand until we have consistent 10% net profit across the entire portfolio of brands plus a million dollars cash in the bank. When we have those two things together, then, um, then we will content, consider um, other acquisition targets so that we just don't put the whole system at risk by, by running a bunch of cash that way. Um, at least right now, that's the way we're looking at it. So, so the other implication of that, of all of that that I just said, is this, this too shall pass. Um, think about what we were all saying in 2020. And this, like wise business people who have been around for a long time, I'm 37, I've really only been in this for the last five, six years. Um, people who've been around for a long time and in high level executive leadership for a long time, they all say this. Hey, look, there's good times and there's bad times and they all pass at some point. Um, the, um, the, 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 um, we all last year were sitting there going like, holy cow, what a boom for e-commerce. Everything is going awesome. It's so amazing because nobody can buy anything in the stores so they're all buying things online. And we all had the greatest Aprils and Mays of our e-commerce lives last in 2020. Then what happened in 2021? Well, that passed. What, in 2021, on top of iOS 14 coming in and screwing up our paid media, uh, all the supply chains in the world broke. So I had a brand that was waiting on a key product for two and a half months and just right through the peak season that we would have had. And man, that really hurt us. Um, but you know what? That's not going to be forever. I just heard that some shipping rates from China are starting to come back down. I'm, I'm shocked at that. I didn't think that was going to happen for another year, but they're starting to come back down. And, um, and so uh, just knowing in the long game that you're playing that this will pass, um, is important. You asked, you also said it could be life advice. I think all of that applies to life generally as well. I love it. Per, per, if unknown, unknown. You can't control those and when those happen, but you can better prepare to control your reaction and uh, the outcome afterwards. And then, yep. and then this too shall pass. I like it. A little, a this iOS 14 there. thing that is breaking our Facebook ads, it'll pass. There's going to be another way to acquire customers at some point. There is. Maybe Facebook will fix it. Uh, maybe not. This isn't forever. Privacy yeah. might be forever, but somebody will figure something out. Yep. No, for sure. Uh, and that's, yeah. No, I think we can go into a whole other thing of why sometimes capitalism is great because they'll go solve that problem. They'll make money and they'll help other people make money. But that's yep. for a whole other thing. Andrew, really yep. appreciate your time. I love your answers. Glad to connect. And uh, everyone else, thanks for listening. I'll catch you on next episode. Thanks, Matt. Andrew, last thing I forgot. Plug away. Uh, where do you want to point people to if they like what you heard and want to learn more about you? Sure. Uh, two things. The e-commerce playbook podcast, which I host. And I, the goal of that podcast is to tell you really, really honestly what's happening in our business. So uh, I told you about that brand that failed. I did an episode called The Failure of Genuine Canine. Uh, it's the last one I recorded, I think, at the time of this recording. And I just told you why it didn't work. If I could go back and have that brand back again, what would I have done differently? Um, yeah, so e-commerce playbook podcasts found anywhere fine podcasts are sold. Um, and um, and uh, yeah, I bring on some guests occasionally there as well, but uh, it's a lot of me just kind of talking through what's happening in our business uh, with as much honesty as I possibly can muster. Uh, the, the prompt for that show was a friend saying, uh, I want you to bleed on camera. And I was like, ugh, fine. But that's what we try and do. Thank you, Aaron. Um, actually, there's actually, yeah, actually, there's not a camera. There's it's just audio. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then um, and then 
I mentioned admission. Do check that out. Youradmission.co. I think in the stage of, of business that you are in right now, it will really help you get better. I, you used to be involved with admission, right, Matt? Yeah. Yeah. I was, yeah, uh, right. I joined for like two weeks and then they promoted me as a community manager and not just yeah. like guest anymore. Yeah. So I was in there working with uh, everyone for a while in 2020. Yeah, so it's it's definitely evolved it's a lot good. there, but it's it's really a great training program and great community. It's more than just a course. It's it's an actual ongoing training program. You're getting the best and brightest that CTC has to offer from managing, I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars of paid spend and probably billions of dollars of revenue at this point. So um, anyway, so uh, uh, definitely check that out. Youradmission.co. Uh, use the code Andrew. I'll make sure it's turned on and you'll get something off. <laughs> probably like on awesome. or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Your admission.co e-commerce playbook podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Everyone else, catch you next week.